90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. Getting geared up for field camp, so that's really exciting. Um, I'm sure, you know, the four people who have listened to this show for more than two years are like, oh, we're going to talk about that again. But the good news is we've already... No, they're they're used to, we're now entering the griping about grading phase. Ah, I know. And I'm trying not to gripe about that. Mostly because I haven't done as hardly any grading. (laughs) (laughs) As your students will attest. Oh, man, they're so angry. (laughs) And at that point, I'm like, you guys, this only helps you because I've put it off for so long. Like, I can't justify failing you because <laughs> this is my fault. You have had no feedback. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, they don't quite get that yet. But, well, the two that listen to this podcast now will get it and say, just keep those tests. It's fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> there was a, yeah, we, there was a robust discussion about take home versus versus in-class finals, though. So apparently my take-home test have traumatized some people. <laughs> I was like, anytime somebody says, would you like to have the take-home test or do it in-class? The in take-home class, tests uh, are always awful. A hundred percent. And the deal is they're super easy to write. You're like, yes, here's three questions. <laughs> Here are three impossible questions. <laughs> impossible questions. That I could never give you on an in-class final because you only have an hour and a half, but at home, you have your whole life. Exactly. Oh, man, it's the roughest. It's the roughest. So, yeah, apparently, um, with my Earth History class last year, everybody um, everybody figured it out, <laughs> and they were like, no, no more. And I was like, we have an 8 a.m. final, guys. Isn't that terrible? They're like, nope, it's fine. We'll be here. <laughs> we'll bring coffee. It's fine. Yep. Oh, yeah. That's great. So, so yeah, that's it. I'm trying to embrace grading. That whole tricking my psychology of, you know, if I complain about it more, I'm going to hate it more and put it off more. But I will say what I do when I grade is I watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy over and over again. So I've already made it through. Well, I'm halfway through the two towers. So. Ah. So that's where we are in the semester, yeah. Mm-hmm. How about right. you? Are you getting inundated with everyone that's planning their summer research? It, you know, it's so we've talked about how my schedule's opposite the academic calendar. <laughs> and it's so funny because just like clockwork, I'm now from now until school lets out, I will get multiple emails a week that start out with now that the semester's winding down, I can focus on my research. <laughs> Oh man. So this is this is entering the crazy time for us. We've we've been relatively chill, just comfortably busy. Um from next month until September I will not sleep. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I hear you too because everyone is walking around saying that and it also makes me mad because I'm like, well, field camp is you know, really stressful for me. So everyone's like, oh, I can't wait two weeks. And I'm like, no, two weeks. And then my life does what your life does too. So, so yep. I totally understand. Uh, this year we have like 27 students. So it's exciting. It's going to be like a real field camp again. So Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a full camp. Mm-hmm. Yep, it sure is. I mean, 
the good thing for our listeners is we've really already talked about every single <laughs> rock out there. So <laughs> maybe our summer shorts will be truly, you know, tidbits about meteorology and geology instead of just field camp cheat sheets. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is shocking. The students haven't figured that out yet, but that's okay. It's true. Uh, <laughs> you know, one thing I've been doing this week, so I've been, I spent last weekend doing something I haven't done since college, mm-hmm. which was I studied my butt off for my instrument written. <gasps> wow. I mean, two days of wake up, make the coffee, start taking notes and doing problems until bedtime kind of days. Wow. That's impressive. So and did it pay I off? Am, uh, well, we'll see. I'm, I'm pretty close to ready. I've still got, I think, one more section to, to take notes on. And then I get to go through the 980-something question practice pool again. Oh, my Lord. <clears throat> okay. Um. And then I think I'll, I'll feel ready. But one of the cool things is a, a lot of times you get asked questions about, it sounds like physics class, like you're going so fast for so many minutes, how far have you gone? Or you're burning so many gallons an hour at this speed. How many gallons will you burn traveling so many miles or, you know, things like that. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Things that are all easy to do with like dimensional analysis and a calculator. Mm-hmm. But when you're flying, you generally don't have time to sit there and do dimensional analysis. Right. That's true. Um, <laughs> so there are tons of apps that will do all these things for you, but those are things that examiners like to fail. You okay. Know, you'll, be, you'll be punching it into your iPad or something, and they'll just reach over and turn it off and go, oh, no, your battery went out. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, feel, I feel like I want to do that with GPSs in the field, too. So. <laughs> Well, so what what we have as a backup is this thing called an E6B, which is a little paper flight computer. It's a circular slide rule. Oh, mm mm-hmm. And I've got to say, I I didn't really use it a whole lot in my private pilot training just because we don't do that much of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we did was all pre-flight pre-planning, so I could just do it with a calculator. Mm-hmm. I love this thing. <laughs> it's your new favorite tool. Like, you can multiply and divide anything on it. Um, it has markings on it for, like, statute miles, nautical miles, miles, gallons, imperial gallons, like the weight of gas, the weight of oil. So you don't have to memorize all these numbers. You can just be like, I have so many quarts multiplied by the weight of oil. How much does it weigh? Mm. Um. The thing I like about it the most, though, is one, I mean, not that the, the batteries thing, you know, I've got my phone, I've got my iPad, I've got a calculator in my flight bag, I have spare batteries for everything in my bag. It doesn't get miskeyed in turbulence. Ah. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I can fly with one hand, twist the wheel with on it with the other hand, and read it. You know, sometimes the old school ways are still okay. I mean, I like it so much, I went and bought a metal one on Amazon. Ah! (laughs) My most used tool when I was a petroleum geologist. So 
there's all these conversions to do based on the different logs that you have, right? So you've got all these like downhole logs um, and there's all kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of relationships and like based on like what the log settings are when they run the logs. And so my friend <laughs> photocopied this little slide rule type thing but then she like stap she laminated it and stapled it together. And so she built me one from her, you know, cardboard one. <laughs> right. And it was this janky stapled together, like a little slide rule. And I used that thing, yeah, till it fell apart. So, you know, I understand. <laughs> yeah, so that's been kind of fun. That was a you know, a rediscovery of something that I think a lot of people don't bother with anymore. Um but it was kind of fun. That's cool. It's, it's a dumb party trick too, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, so do you get to take the test whenever you want? Or is it just one of those things that like they offer at certain times of the year? Or? Yeah, so you have to schedule it. It's oh, at a okay. testing center. Like you were going to go take a real estate exam or oh, okay, gotcha. whatever. So I just have to schedule it. And then um, last time I drove over to Tulsa and took it. Ah, okay. Um. I mean, I guess you've been being graded. I was going to ask if you're, you know, worried about that. But like me, I assume that you're totally fine with being graded. <laughs> yeah, and the nice thing about that test is, I mean, it's all multiple choice. It's 60 multiple choice questions. And it's on the computer. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, They give you a booklet that has all the charts and things that, you know, it'll say this problem it'll be like refer to the chart in figure 143b and you have this book that's like an inch thick of all the figures for all the flight tests from the faa oh wow and so you flip it open to 143 whatever and a lot of it requires drawing but they don't need to draw in their book so they give you a transparency sheet and dry erase markers that's amazing <laughs> and so you've got your transparency sheet and your dry erase markers and you're sitting there in front of the computer and you you do your test and when you say, I'm done, it says, are you really sure you're done? And you say, yes. And you walk outside and they hand you a printout with your score. Oh, man. Gosh, I remember waiting months to see how I did on the ACT. <laughs> yeah. Well, the worst part about this is it gives a code for every question you missed. Ooh. And during the oral exam, those are the areas they're supposed to focus on. Oh, of course. Lovely. Yeah. Okay. Um but no, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of neat. Uh, I do remember it. Yeah. Not the ACT, oh, the GRE. Yeah. I remember on the GRE, like you got part of your score instant and part of it you had to wait on or something. Yes. Cause we had to write, um, I think this was probably still when you were doing it too, you had to write something and then that got like graded by a person. So there was like a writing component that you didn't know how you did. That, and was, that was a, a joke. It was a joke. Um, Yes, that was a joke. It was, it's gone now, just so you know. Um, also, the GRE is completely changed now, and it's out of like 200 or something like that. And so back when I took it, and when I assume you took it, it was out of like 1600, like the, S like the ACT, SAT, right? I think so, yeah. Um, or 1400, something like that. Because I had a student say, I got a 150. Is that good? And I think my face made that student have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, a 150 out of 800? 
And they're like, what? I'm like, oh, okay. I'm sorry. This test has totally changed. Oh, no. I remember they were, um, they were changing it because I got both. Oh, weird. I got a new and an old score. I gotcha. Yeah, I kind of remember that. I don't remember what I got on it. I remember going and taking it and being like, well, this is the first time. Like, I'm not going to mess with it too bad. And then the score came back and I was like, eh, good enough. Uh, I cried when I got mine. Oh man. Like, no, I was, I was super overachiever on my ACTs. Um, and then I got my GRE scores and I remember I was very upset and I was like, this is dumb. Like I already have like two grad school offers essentially, (laughs) but yeah, it was like something in like the 600s or something like that. And I was like, this is, this is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And now it couldn't matter any less, but do you remember that? Are you really done? Because if you click this to see your scores, they're sent to your colleges that you put in. And I was like, oh, yep. a, or you can just walk away and take it again. Like, oh, that's... for another however many hundred dollars. Exactly. So we quit requiring GREs. And... I think that's great because the GRE yep. had nothing to do with my success or failure in graduate school. No, exactly. It's a pyramid scheme. Well, it's not a pyramid scheme, but it's just a money making scheme. Mm hmm. And there's all kinds of, all kinds of biases and terrible things going on with those electronic tests. I wish my kid is taking his right now, the state test, and yeah, nothing nice to say about that. So we should probably talk about rocks. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was I was debating what to suggest for this week, and we've kind of already talked about this because we talked about debris flows. Mm-hmm. And we had your favorite word ever, the turdibidite, <laughs> in that fun paper. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, and we kind of casually mentioned that, you know, turbidity currents deposit rocks that have this sequence of big to small grains because energy goes down. Mm-hmm. And then we mentioned energy going down again last week with deltas. Right, yeah. Sure did. And, you know, I thought, let's let's talk about these sequences that are deposited starting with what a turbidite deposits which we i think may have even said the words bauma sequence mm-hmm. yeah that was the extra credit question on my first exam i said what does a turbidite deposit and if somebody had written turbidites i would have given them extra credit <laughs> shows you um, how many of your students listen to our show uh yeah exactly um i Love Bauma sequences, mostly because I'm real obsessed with um, watching turbidite experiments on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) I assign those all the time. (laughs) And we have a huge, huge turbidite tank that every year everyone wants to get rid of. And I'm like, no, no, I'm going to figure out how to use it one day. (laughs) So... Well, conveniently enough, uh, we're now... We just prototyped and are going to be putting on our website pretty soon a tabletop scale turbidite tank yeah Yeah. super amazing super amazing i'm very excited about this you'd simulate warm fronts cold fronts turbidite all kinds of cool stuff we haven't tried to make a bauma sequence in it yet but i think we're gonna try it oh excellent um yeah because it's all the same physics everybody (laughs) if i say the words air axis of fluid one more time in my sedimentary petrology class i think they're gonna scream (laughs) well what i would love to know is 
what, what's a frontal Valma sequence look like? Is it is it grasshoppers, <laughs> it's grasshoppers on the bottom? That's exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> grasshoppers and then like ladybugs and then dust. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but I mean, that's what a Bauman sequence is, too. Um, so, like, the part of sedimentology that I like is the process part. Like, process sedimentology is really cool. I like all of sedimentology. I also like the physics of picking up grains. I think that's very interesting. Um, so, the Bauman sequence is the perfect sort of like, this is the deposit that represents what's happening in the fluid during this process. So it's a sedimentary structure and it's just like you said, John, like big stuff on the bottom, tiny stuff on the top. Sometimes you see partial Bauma sequences. Sometimes you see full Bauma sequences. And so there's like A through E of the things that occur as these density currents start to deposit um, the stuff that they're carrying. Right. And the Bauma doesn't mean something weird in Latin. It's somebody's name. It's <laughs> Arnold Bauma. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and yeah, they creatively named A through E. Now here's my, I, I guess it makes sense that A is the first thing deposited. So it's on the bottom. Mm-hmm. But boy, when you write it with A on the bottom, it sure looks wrong. Oh, see, no, not at all to me, because this is this is the geologist, yeah, this is the geologist in me, that's not I, quite in you. <laughs> yeah, geologists read from bottom to top of the page. Always uh, from bottom to top. Why they have such a hard time with math? <laughs> oh, that's sad. But such a great time with Japanese comics, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, starting at the bottom, layer. A, Mm -hmm. this is going to be your big chunks, your high energy stuff. (laughs) Right. So it just makes sense that these are the first things to fall out because they're really heavy, really heavy. Um, And when we talk about turbidites, it's generally a pretty, um, pretty specific to bodies of water, usually in the ocean. But you can get these in really big lakes, too, actually. Um, so that's kind of cool. They flow along the bottom. Lots of stuff in trained. Go watch one of these YouTube videos of turbidite tank experiments, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. But, uh, yeah, you'll have rip-up clasts, which are just pointy pieces of the stuff that is lithified that it's sliding on. So oftentimes this is out near the shelf boundary, in the ocean. So you'll get pieces of shale, um, pebbles, sandstones, and you get lots of really cool, um, erosional features too. And so you'll often see in sandstone beds, you'll see these little spoon shaped features or these little scoops taken out of the bedrock. And you'll get a lot of those, um, scoops and scours as well in the first layer, the A layer that's really big. And there was another word in here, dish structure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I looked up dish structures, and these are one of those fascinating things that we thought we knew how it worked until the 70s. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then we discovered we didn't. They're not primary. They're secondary. 
Okay. So they don't happen when the rock's deposited. They happen after. And it's because you have this unconsolidated thing that's rapidly dewatered because you drop a turbidite on top of it. (laughs) And as that water is trying to get out, it hits something that impedes its flow, and it drops a bunch of clays and fines and stuff and makes these dish-looking lenses. Ah, okay. That makes sense. I thought that that was a fluid escape feature when you said it, but I wasn't sure what exactly it was. That's really cool. So just little little pieces of much finer stuff because there's nowhere for it to go. Yeah. That's so cool. it's you know, it's trying to flow through here and it hits a brick wall and all the little stuff falls out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Um because when we say these like we say gravity flow, this thing is moving really fast. Like yeah. Hundreds of 100 kilometers per hour sort of stuff. Yeah, and I, you know, the analogy for that for a dish structure is take your kitchen sponge and get it good and soaked and then go throw it out in front of a semi on the interstate. <laughs> it will get rapidly dewatered. <laughs> rapidly. And all those little fluid or all those little food pieces that are in it uh, are going to hit obstructions as this water is getting shot out and they're going to form a little pork dish structures yeah gross (laughs) excellent so yeah that's um that you can't tell what we had for dinner no oh (laughs) (laughs) so the erosional base of the uh, i'm past your dish structure gross food analogy (laughs) (laughs) like the erosional base with all that stuff those are my favorite parts on the bauma sequences and if you think about having a submarine canyon, right? So a canyon that would funnel density currents down. Um, that's not likely to just happen once, right? It's likely to happen several times. That's why I was talking about those partial Bauma sequences. And so this piece of observation is actually really critical is to look at the contacts here because that's how you can tell how many like stacked turbidite sequences you have because the rest of this stuff is all falling out and the contacts are what we'd call gradational so a through e the contacts pretty much just blend into each other but if you were to have another turbidite come through it's going to erode down into that and so this contact is generally wavy and that indicates the start of a different bauma sequence Right, and that's one thing I had a problem with in field, really, was somebody would say, you know, this is a fining upward bed. And I'm like, okay, I see the big chunks at the bottom, but everything in that top, you know, five or six feet looks the same. I'm like, no, it's getting finer. I can't tell that. <laughs> <laughs> so in Bauma sequences, though, it's much more obvious than some of those things that people say this is fining upward. <laughs> This is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I think finding upward is one of those kind of throwaway comments that somebody puts in to look like they know what they're talking about in front of an outcrop. Uh, and then if you have flat contacts and then you have a bunch of those stacked on top of each other, how do you know they're not coarsening upward? Right. Depends on where you start counting from, right? It does. Uh, mm-hmm. It reminds me of a field geos- I will. I will leave all of these parties nameless because I don't know <laughs> if they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um but who would, 
refer to something that maybe they didn't know what it was, but didn't want to say that, or it was really a joke. They, of course, they knew what all the stuff was that we were looking at, but um, would call it a bazoom. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you can see by this bazoom feature here, and everybody's like, what? I got to look that up. <laughs> That's like getting somebody with that leverite joke, right? Yep. Yeah. What's this crappy mineral? I say it's a leverite, and they say, what? Leverite where you found it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So, we'll, uh, we'll go on up the sequence here. So, we're going to leave all that big stuff on the bottom, the, the grasshoppers or the, the rip-up class. And now we get to the B-layer, which has these other... So, I had to look, look these up, too. Soul markings. Uh, so, these are sort of... That's kind of what I was talking about before, like those spoon and disc structures too right this is stuff like flute casts right is that is that right flute casts yes. groove casts okay. parting lineations mm-hmm. okay great um i don't think i've ever called them soul marks though but i mean it makes sense i guess because yeah. it's on the base there are some great photos uh, if you google soul marks and if you textbook. look these up you might go oh that's what I've seen in these rocks that I walk by on the trail all the time. Or especially you'll see a lot of these in um, like flagstones just because of the way that those sandstones will, will break apart. And you've got this nice flat, um, almost flat rock that you're going to use as a flagstone, but the top of it will have these casts all over it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're still pretty high energy mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. because these marks can come from like it dragging things along too so yeah big enough to carry things and do some erosion so the the fluid dynamics bit of this was if grains can be moved via traction <laughs> okay yes so we're we're yeah we're dragging stuff dragging. along mm -hmm. yep and not dragging small stuff no no, no, not at all. I mean, not, not the great big boulders from the other week. Right, but pebbles. Pebbles, yeah. And maybe some gravel-sized pieces every once in a while. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those will do that. And party so then, lineations, too. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy. <laughs> all but, words for trenches dug by stuff getting dragged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly and so this is the sandy part too right yeah yep and then we can go up into the sea layer mm -hmm. and now we're actually starting to not really have that much energy so we're saltating saltation so little grain hops along hits another grain that grain either rolls or hops itself yeah mm-hmm when in physics, they were talking about elastic and inelastic collisions and billiard balls hitting each other. That's saltation. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly. That's exactly saltation, especially when you do those trick shots and you hit the, hit the cue ball from up top and it jumps. Yeah, especially that. <laughs> right. And saltation produces these nice ripple laminated sandstones. These are so cool. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and 
my favorite part about all this is like looking at the flow regimes. So as these water, this happens in air too, you know, slows down. So when it's really fast, you get the planar laminated, starts to slow down and you form these ripples. And it's the same sequence every time of what you form. And it just happens that the Balma sequence preserves all of that. And it's really neat. This is probably my, the C layer is my favorite layer of a Balma sequence for sure. All right, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I like fluid escape features. Yeah, so these, I, I had to do a little bit of reading. Not as much. I have heard you say the word flame structure before and gone, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but, I mean, it looks like flames, right? <laughs> it, it looks like flames, and it's, again, you're dumping stuff on top and... Uh, in this case, not water, but the rock below is trying to get out. Mm-hmm. You're overpressuring it, and, it's and just, uh, yeah. it squirts out. Squirts up there. They look like Kelvin Hemholtz waves too. Some of them. Ooh, mm-hmm. what's their what's their Brunvisla frequency? <laughs> I'll have to send you this one specific picture. It's very KH looking. um yeah flame structures are super fun i haven't seen them in the field only a couple of times but i sure talk about them a lot just because they're unique and you know i think fluid escape stuff is is really fun you overpressure this stuff and it's got to go somewhere and it makes these weird weird things you can see these in rivers too um you'll also get a thing that we just in general classify as soft sediment deformation so flame structures are a piece of that. Convoluted bedding is a piece of that. Um, TP structures, not so much, but they get talked about all within soft sediment deformation. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this is sort of like, I guess you could say, I would say the physics is a little different, but it's really not. It's, um, it's like a salt dome, but yeah. mini. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's faster, not maybe. Right. It's absolutely faster than it moving around. But yeah, I can totally see that. But you think about it, you've got this sand that's piled. So sand settles out and you've got a sandy layer. And then you start settling this fine-grained stuff on top of it. Which of those is denser? Mm-hmm. The fine-grained stuff. So it's putting more overpressure on it. And yep. eventually that's going to sand geyser out somewhere. Yeah, it's got it's to squirt up somewhere. Exactly right. <laughs> it's super cool. Yeah. Flame structures are fun. And yeah, so, bedding, so that's always really cool. And then we get into the, the, the boring part. <laughs> Ugh, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Just dropping out finds <laughs> in roughly parallel beds. Now, the, the absolute chaos of the turbidity current has passed for hours, days, and now all the little silt particles, muds, start falling out of the water column. Mm-hmm. And, and so you get these parallel siltstones. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this is you can get planar laminations in really fast flow, which you get in the B layer. Okay, get really fast flow. Um, then ripples, and then you get parallel laminated siltstones too. 
which, you know, planar and parallel, they can look similar, but you can tell in this D layer, these siltstones, that there's just, there's nothing else like these flute cast or groove cast that are caught, that are created during high energy. You don't get anything like that. Just what you said, John, boring little, little bitty layers of siltstones. It's hard to even call it layered, in my opinion. It's just a mass of silt. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, you could get some, not mud drapes per se, but you could get some like mud lenses, depending on the environment that the turbidite's occurring in, in this okay, layer. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And then the least, not the least boring. So it gets, that's the most boring layer. I'm sorry, people that are real into that. <laughs> but the last one, which is the lowest energy, but it's also more interesting because it is super low energy, is all the mud that's left over. Yeah, and this is the only layer after the bulldozer of the, the flow comes through. Now, finally, we can start getting life back into the sediment. Right, exactly. So that's the... That's the fun part of this is that you could see um, trace fossils everywhere. And so trace fossils aren't the actual bodies. They're the things that things leave behind. So burrows or, you know, cruciana faces, which are little things crawling around. And you can see they're crawling around. You can see their weird little feeding burrows and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Which it's so cool that you can see a little tunnel that something dug millions of years ago. Oh, it's so awesome. We were in, uh, this is the coolest trace fossil I've ever seen. So people that do trace fossils are called ichnologists. Ichnologists, right? Um, <laughs> I'm going to make sure that's the thing. Is it ichnologist? That sounds, yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I would feel confident in that. Hmm. Yes, it is right. Okay. Just had to make sure. I worry about, yeah, getting that wrong and then fish. It sounds like fish. <laughs> but that's right, not, not ichthyologist. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, like, I'm, <laughs> I make fun of my one friend that is an ichnologist and be like, how can you, like, you, you can tell what animal made this hole for real. <laughs> but they can. And one of the coolest museum exhibits we I've ever seen were these huge plates of sandstone. And so they were set up um, to where you were looking at them. And there's this little trace fossil all the way. It's this little trilobite trucking along. Okay. And so, like, you can see, it's, that's just like a roly-poly. So you can see where all the little legs have, dis have moved the sediment around and disturbed it. And it's, like, 20 feet long. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> there's just nothing. And what the nothing was, it was like convoluted bedding and this like poof. It looks like a poof of sediment all around it. And it's where the poor little guy got eaten. <laughs> yep. <laughs> by something swimming along above. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, trace fossils are kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> but these are the layers that... Um, usually get ripped up. You'll usually see like A, B, A, B, C, A, B. Then maybe if you're lucky, you'll see an A, B, C, D, E. 
Balma sequence in certain places because, like I said, they frequently occur in the same topography. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I've got some sedimentology trivia for you. Oh, gosh. I'm going to do terrible at this. <laughs> All right. What sequence was designed to complement the Bauma sequence, but the Bauma sequence applying to, namely, low-density turbidity currents? What sequence is the corresponding sequence for a high-density turbidity current? High-density turbidity currents. There's something different than that. Hmm. Three well, layers. Okay. No, I have no idea. The low sequence. L-O-W-E? L-O-W-E. I, wow. Hmm. What's higher density? <laughs> I mean, I guess <laughs> rock flowing down Yeah, downhill. like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> uh, so huh. it actually... Like I said, it doesn't really replace the Bauma sequence. Um, so let's see. It says that the finer grain turbidites from low-density turbidity currents have Bauma A through E. In low, those are TA through TE. Okay. And that T is traction. Okay. Okay, so then on top of that, you get S, which are uh, sandwich turbidite deposits. That's what a high density is, according to Lowe. Okay. And so you have S1, S2, and S3. Hmm. And then... Oh, my gosh. There's... <laughs> I, I mean, I had actually heard of a low sequence once. I had no really? idea what it was. I hmm. just heard the word low sequence. And then when I was doing my research for the show, it came back up. I said, oh, um, low also proposed layers R1, R2, and R3, but it says that they're never used. What does the R stand for? Rubble. <laughs> okay. So T is for traction, S is for sandstone, R is for rubble. Hmm. Interesting. These S layers, though, they get more interesting. Okay. So... S1 is sandstone to conglomerate. Big boys. Okay. Big boys. Yep. Uh, <laughs> which it still says are deposited via traction processes. So I'm, well, I am still somewhat fuzzy on the T to S line here. Hmm. Um, but then in S2, you get reverse grading. Okay, so grading is how you would describe the bed form. And so normally graded beds are a waning flow sequence. So the flow slowing down, big at the bottom, little at the top. So reverse is the opposite of that. How does this happen? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> the explanation that I found of the S2 layer was not super convincing. Um, they use the word traction carpets, which I thought was... Okay. <laughs> um, basically the impression I got from it was you've got this big kind of sheet of things that are 
you know, say sand grains that are flowing. And via grain-to-grain collisions, they're lofting stuff up, like large grains that were already settled. And so you Mm. get this reverse sequence. I found precisely one picture of an S2 layer in Peru. Okay. That's, hmm. I, I would love for a catastrophic sedimentologist, Shannon... (laughs) <laughs> to be able to explain the traction carpet hypothesis because i am not convinced yeah so so i already just went to like sand sheet flooding something like that is what i'm thinking hmm. okay i'm gonna come back next week and have at least three sentences to say about traction carpets <laughs> yeah and then on top of that finally you get the s3 which is graded sandstone overlying the s2 you get your dewatering structures and that sort of thing. And it's, it's, it is your Balma A layer. Okay. So just really sandy units instead of these cloudy, muddy units. Right. I mean, that's fair because there are lots of, lots of offshore situations where you don't have a lot of mud in the system. So I could see that. So right. you probably don't get well-developed Balma sequences since it's hard to tell very fine sand from very coarse silt. <laughs> right. Hmm. Okay. So, in your in your traction carpet explanation, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to this. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh-huh. okay. But That's yeah, weird. low sequences. Uh, yet another way that you know we took something that we'd already subdivided and decided yep. to subdivide and it once did more it even more oh man you know what um that traction carpet too reminds me of is um when you talk about like slab decoupling and avalanches oh yeah yeah like where the whole thing moves as a unit where the whole thing is moving together yeah yeah um hmm. interesting enough the low sequence was proposed 20 years after the Bauma sequence. Of course. Seems seems about right. <laughs> like, yep. hmm, how can we make this more complicated? <laughs> Man, geologist. I tell my students that the more names something has, that means the less we understand it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, interesting. Okay. How many ways can we say this looks funny? Mm-hmm, exactly. It appears at least three ways <laughs> for this. <laughs> right. Uh, hmm. All right. Interesting. Well, you know, what I wonder sometimes is what would happen <laughs> if a different set of sedimentologists in a different time approached the exact same problem? How would we, would we describe it differently? Mm, only the multiverse knows. And that is what we're going to explore in this week's <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. Oh, yay. So this one, I'm not going to lie. Um, I might have gone to sleep for a little bit while I was reading it. Ouch. I know. I, I know it's good, but... <sighs> so do you want to try the tongue twister title? Mm, would boar be born if bone were born before born? Yep. 
<laughs> you can do the author, though. <laughs> By Nicolick. <laughs> um, I will say that clearly I love any abstract that has Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> quoted in it. Yep. And then also a pun in Bohemian where they take the E out to be <laughs> Bohemian. And appropriate to the paper and to our topic, is this real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide. No escape from reality. Oh, man. That was a beautiful segue right there. Uh, it, it was, yes. I, I liked that one. <laughs> so this is really weird. Like, this is... Yeah, I feel like this paper in itself is like two different dimensions in the multiverse. <laughs> Anytime it starts out, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, we you know it's going to be deep. <laughs> That's why I fell asleep. <laughs> but it is really interesting. So I had to look up, obviously, Copenhagen interpretation to understand if I understood that. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right, which is that electrons are both like waves and particles, right? The wave-particle duality that we all get taught in exactly. chemistry or physics or modern physics or wherever you start getting into quantum <laughs> stuff. Wherever you've picked that up along the way. <laughs> um, so it's really, I mean, it's a really interesting thing that he brings up is that, well, what if, like, why is that the one that we chose? You know, there are these other interpretations that are maybe just as valid. And <laughs> that's what I love about quantum mechanics. Yeah. Like, well, you can you can think about it this way or you can think about it this way. They both give us the same result. I just... So does it matter? <laughs> and I love how in here, oh, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but he like rips some dude for just being too philosophical. I'm like, "For real? For real? All of this isn't philosophical, you jerks." <laughs> Right. <laughs> like, because it kind of is all philosophical. And I love that he points out that there's probably a multiverse where the Copenhagen interpretation isn't the one that we've moved forward with. And so he wants to write about the history of that not being the one we've moved forward with. Right. And, you know, there's a lot <laughs> getting, I mean, I'm not going to say we get deep into the math here. No, it's not too bad. Um, but we start looking at, so the, you got the Schrodinger equations. Mm -hmm. Well, we didn't like those initially because they have imaginary numbers in them. <laughs> and at that point, physics was still based completely in the real plane. Yeah, you could do experiments and that's what dictated what you, <laughs> what equations you made. <laughs> right, and so these imaginary numbers made things a little uncomfortable. So we said, well, like... Like any good, I mean, this almost sounds like an engineer, guys. Um, we don't like that. So we're going to apply a transform to this <laughs> and rewrite the equation and get what we call the Hamilton-Jacobi equation. Okay. And now it starts looking like things we're kind of used to. There's a velocity-looking term, and we start looking more like classical mechanics again, so we get the warm, fuzzy comfortables. <laughs> That's great. Let's take your weird stuff and turn it back into what we want to see. <laughs> okay. And one of the more interesting things is there 
appears a density term when you do this. And you're like, well, what's what's the density of... <laughs> the density of what? <laughs> well, well, it's the density of the path of an electron. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> Great. This this reminds me so much of when you would get stuck doing a derivation. Like you <laughs> couldn't you go just... any further. And you would say, well, what if I multiply by a special form of one? <laughs> because your special form of one could be like multiplying by rho GH over rho GH. Exactly. And somehow multiplying by this special form of one, a bunch of terms drop out and you, <laughs> you keep moving. <laughs> Oh, man, it's so true. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> you can multiply everything one. by I. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, all, all these tricks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that we do as mathematicians and scientists. <laughs> I, I had one professor, I think you probably did too, who that was like their favorite thing was to give you derivations where you had to figure out what bizarre form of one you had to multiply by to get the whole thing to work. To get it. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've blocked that part of my life out. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> so this became the the orthodox interpretation. Um, the, the Bohr interpretation. And, you know, he said, well, maybe it's because Bohr had this model of the atom that was pretty successful, even though later on he said, yeah, it wasn't right. <laughs> and I feel like that's still how I think about it, too. I'm like, man, I, I understand more. After reading this, I thought a lot about how all these geologists grew up not knowing plate tectonics, right? And like, yeah. didn't even get taught it in college. And then now it's the foundational thing. Like... That's, right. That messes you up a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, he said, well, so so Born uh, didn't like this interpretation for one, many others as well, and started arguing probabilistic interpretations, which mm-hmm. now, you know, we do everything in terms of probability density functions and yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. all these probabilistic models. Uh, but at the time, that was, yes. no, like you said, you do an experiment. Mm-hmm. And exactly. the time for the ball to fall is not a probability. It's a time, and I yeah. can calculate it. <laughs> yes, very engineering. Correct. So that did not, not get much acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, think uh, Ant-Man here, right? <laughs> right. Though, I mean, there's all this evidence that it actually... If, if you look at work like by Dirac... Um, or von Neumann, who started doing all these like Heisenberg matrix formulations of quantum mechanics, it starts fitting really well with those. Mm-hmm. And now we think of the electron cloud as really a probability density function of where an electron might be. But if we know where it is, it's not there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Not just that particle circling. Right. In an orbit. Mm-hmm. Um. And this kind of started tying into the Heisenberg uncertainty relation, as well. Uh, because there were some suggestions that, well, it's not there unless you measure it there. Right. Uh, so then, yeah, people started trying to twist this and saying, like, oh, well, the prob- or the density is really the chance that you find the electron along this path. And physicists really started bending over backwards to make this interpretation fit. 
<laughs> and so this is where, yeah, there's <laughs> the hand wavy. Well, it's probably both somewhere it switches over. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like, I love it. Like, they're both true. Somewhere exists where one becomes more true than the other one. Right. Like, well, everything's Newtonian until you get close to the speed of light, and then it gets more relativistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then at the speed of light, it's relativistic. Right. <laughs> so, you know, speaking of relativity, Einstein was another one who really wasn't a fan of the, mm-hmm. the Bohr interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And... <laughs> So it said he finally accepted that quantum mechanics was weird, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when they start talking about, you know, it says uh, he was looking at the geometric formulation of relativity, Einstein was, mm-hmm. and looking at the fact that they had introduced the tachyon, which is a hypothetical particle that can move faster than light, yet still obey the principles of relativity. <laughs> so... Yeah, you start having to do some really weird stuff to make these interpretations fit, which means they're probably not all the way there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then <laughs> I love how uh, this paragraph started. A new crisis for orthodox <laughs> quantum mechanics arose with the development of quantum field theory. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Oh, this is good. <laughs> yeah, so now you take the fields of quantum mechanics, electromechanics, mechanics... <laughs> thermo all these things and say they all have to in relativity and say they all have to play well together in a quantum field theory model <laughs> then everything starts blowing up mm-hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> oh man mm-hmm. so what happens now <laughs> well uh the author says you know bomi the bomian interpretation would have, could have been the dominating view today if things had gone just a little different. hmm Yep. And he says he will leave it to the sociologists and historians to explain why. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and this is, yeah, this is a very interesting point, and you could probably argue this for many times in the history of science. I, I would love to see it if, you know, a comp- a competing geological theory, like what if plate tectonics won out in the beginning? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or what if plate tectonics didn't win? <laughs> right. Obviously like, what kind a... of crazy things would we be doing to explain mm-hmm. what we see? Well, there's probably a multiverse that it's happening in. <laughs> It's true. There's probably a multiverse where we can record a show that's less than an hour as well. I don't believe that's true. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, probabilistically speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you feel uh, like you would like to be further quantum entangled in this (laughs) this predicament that we've created with this podcast, uh, you can send us your feedback you can send us what version of quantum mechanics uh, you subscribe to <laughs> at least in your reality uh, shannon how can people send that in yeah like Bohr, you can just you know not do any math and 
Give us some suggestions. Show at don't panic doc. Nope. Show at don't panic geocast.com. You can find us on Twitter at don't panic geo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. You can sometimes find us in the don't panic channel, the software underground. And Thank you to all our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's definitely not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers, 